grace and peace to you from God our Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, friends. Amen. I'm going to assume that what was true at my high school was also true at your high school. I think it's a pretty universal truth for teenagers. There was probably a, call it the cool kids table in the cafeteria, right? And maybe you sat there. Maybe you didn't. Either way, I want you to imagine for a moment that you were, again, teenagers always know this, one of the desperately uncool kids. You were not one of the cool kids. You were not one of the athletic kids. You were not one of the academically minded kids. You were not one of the funny kids. You were not one of the kids gifted in varied and different ways. You were kind of a nobody. Kids know who gets to sit at the cool kids table. A kid like that knows, I don't get to sit at the cool kids' table. Nobody has to tell you. Nobody has to make that clear to you. There doesn't have to be a a list of the people who are allowed to sit at that table. You just kind of know, I don't belong there. I I don't get to be there. Of course, it's a good thing we all grow out of that, right, as adults. Adults never worry over status. Adults never worry over whether other people are thinking about them, what it is that other people are thinking about them. And adults never worry about which group they belong to, how highly they're esteemed by other people. Adults, oh, we get to leave all that behind in high school, right? Right. Maybe not so much. See, sinful humans do this. We obsess over status. We obsess over what group it is that we're attached to and what the relative status of that group is compared to other groups and whether we're allowed to participate in the things that the the esteemed group is. And if we don't belong to the group that people esteem, we figure out some way that we can sort of tear that group down and elevate our group. Just like the the kids who don't sit at the cool kids table might look at them and say, ah, they're all just phonies, hypocrites dumb jocks. The easiest way for sinful humans to make themselves feel better about themselves is to tear down other humans. This isn't the way that the Christian church works. Instead, the Apostle Paul writes to us, as we heard in our second reading, that there's no dividing wall. No hostility, no line drawn, no particular table or set of tables at which we all belong. Instead, we're all, the Bible uses the metaphor, seated at the the wedding banquet, one wedding banquet. And there's not a a family table, a close friends table, and then way at the back of it. Right, that's how weddings work still in art. You have to sit at the the friends table, maybe, or maybe you just have to sit at the the distant relatives table, right, the third cousin's table off in the corner where that table's going to get moved out of the way for everybody to dance. No, there's one wedding table, as the Christian church described, one banquet table set out by the one bridegroom for his bride, the church. And so we heard the Apostle Paul write to us, there's neither Jew nor Gentile in the letter to the Galatians, neither slave nor free, neither is there male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. That verse gets misused sometimes, as many Bible verses can be misused, to imply that the New Testament church makes no distinction between men and women, or the unique roles that God calls them to play in their relationships with one another, and their relationships in the church. Not so. It's not what Paul's talking about there. Instead, what Paul wants us to understand is that no one, no one whatsoever, ought to feel 
special, of higher status, higher worth, higher value than anyone else because of the accident, the circumstances of their natural birth. In fact, God says over and over in the scriptures that it's idolatry to find any special value, worthiness, significance in who he happened to make you at your birth, at your natural birth, idolatry. God tells us instead that the one place, the one place where we ought to find value, worthiness, is in our rebirth, in his love for us, in the life of his Son given for us, in his indwelling Holy Spirit given as a gift through faith, through the gospel message. This is where we find our, our value, our worth. To have that attitude is what the Bible just simply calls humility. Right? To see myself as unimpressive, unimportant, and lowly, no matter who I happen to be by the circumstances of my natural birth, no matter what it is I happen to have accomplished, no matter what it is that people have rewarded me with, I'm unimpressive, I'm unimportant, I'm lowly. And then, no matter who I am, what I've done to look at others, no matter who they are or what they've done as more important than myself, more worthy of my time than myself, to, to think about their needs before my own. The Bible calls that attitude simply humility. And God's promise all throughout the scriptures that he exalts the humble, casts down the proud. That's the dynamic that we're going to see at work in today's gospel reading. As we get into examining that text, I want you to look out for this dynamic at work, and this, this simple truth. Humble faith is great faith. Our text begins, Jesus went on from there. Right, A classic case of, well, what, what was happening just before this? Two weeks ago, what we heard was of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then last week, Pastor Burkholz was here, and he preached to us on the crossing, Jesus walking on the water as the disciples were out there battling the storm that came up. Jesus walks out to them on the water. Peter, they're first frightened. They think he's a ghost. Instead, he says, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Peter asks, Lord, call me out to you. This invites him out. Peter starts walking out there on the water. Then he starts sinking, slipping. Lord, save me! He calls Jesus, grabs him, takes him into the boat. And he says something to Peter that we see sort of at work in both of those instances. Oh, you have little faith, he says to Peter. Peter saw the storm. Peter saw the waves. Peter saw the wind. He doubted. And the disciples, as they saw the problem before them with the 5,000 plus people there waiting to be fed, they didn't think to ask Jesus to solve the situation. Instead, they told him, what? Send the people away. Get them something to eat somewhere else. Let them figure things out for themselves. Little faith. Over and over. Jesus chides, rebukes the disciples for their little faith. That was last week. Between then and now, we jumped over in our readings, and our selections, uh, a small but important chunk of Matthew's Gospel. Right at the beginning of chapter 15, when Jesus comes across that lake with the disciples in the boat, he gets out, and immediately, what do they do? They bump into the Pharisees. Dun, dun, dun. We're talking about these guys in our, uh, our After Sunday Bible study series right now, the Pharisees, their religious movement, their, uh, their philosophical, uh, theological tenets. And the conflict that arises between them and Jesus because of these things. And the Pharisees, 
come to Jesus aggressively. There at the beginning of Matthew chapter 15 with this, this complaint, this accusation. Your disciples are not obeying the, uh, the ceremonial laws which our elders have handed down to us. They don't wash their hands before eating, or at the very least, they weren't giving them the particular ritual hand-washing. Maybe the disciples were washing their hands, but what the Pharisees are inordinately concerned for is the ritual, uh, the rite, the ceremony attached to it. And as always, when Jesus and the Pharisees start butting heads, Jesus just lets them have it, blasts them for being pious hypocrites. This is not to say, though, that the Pharisees were what you might call sort of gross sinners outwardly. As we've been talking about these last few weeks, studying them, Jesus holds them up a number of times as upstanding citizens, good people in that sense, scrupulous to to do what was right and good. And so when Jesus, in the section just before this reading, blasts them for their hypocrisy, he doesn't say, you, you... liars, all this kind of thing. He doesn't blast them for any particular outward gross sin. He gives this example that's really minor seeming. He says that they're hypocrites because they have carved out a loophole in the way that God's law ought to be practiced that allows adult children to not support their parents with the money that those adult children have should those adult children dedicate that money in a particular ceremonial way. Not even that Jesus tells us that the Pharisees did this. It seems that it would kind of go counter to the way that they again strove to be good, upstanding people. It's unlikely that the Pharisees actually used this loophole, but their teachers taught that they probably could use this loophole. Because the Pharisees looked to, to nitpick God's law and to sort of find the strictures of it and find the loopholes and talk about those things and debate those things. And that's what drives Jesus nuts about these people. It is not that they are gross outward sinners. It is not that they live lives of dissolution. It's that they were loveless. That they would carve out this loophole, clearly ignoring Sure, you've got it according to the letter Jesus is saying to them, but the spirit of the law is love. Don't you love your parents? Don't you want to support your parents? Don't you want to take care of them? God doesn't intend for there to be a loophole because he wants you to love your parents. And if you're going to carve out this loophole and say, that's okay, you're totally missing the spirit of the law because you've lost love. This is what Jesus hates about the Pharisees, that they look at God's law and lose love. He says elsewhere that with all the rules and regulations that they would lay down on people, all their dictums about the proper way to live as God's people, that they were laying heavy burdens on people, yet they themselves would not lift a finger to help those people. Loveless. And so Jesus says at the end of that encounter, it's not unclean, ceremonially unclean hands that are going to defile you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. And Jesus says what's coming out of the Pharisee's heart because there's no love there is as thoroughly defiling than if they had decided to to sit down and eat lunch sitting in a pigsty, slop all over their hands. They might as well have gone ahead and done that because they were as thoroughly defiled by their lovelessness as they would have been by anything else. And then... 
we get into today's reading. And yikes, we hear Jesus say what he says to this woman. This woman, this sorrowful, scared mother, comes to him pleading and begging for him to help her demon-possessed daughter. And Jesus, what does he do? He calls her a dog. If it is indeed, as Jesus says, what comes out of the heart and off the lips that defiles us, then what are we to make of him? What are we to say about him, right? We hear Jesus say this, and as modern Westerners in 2023, there's a very particular word that we go to to describe what Jesus sounds like here. Jesus sounds like a racist. Bible commentators address that particular thought, and it's worth noting the particular word that Jesus does use here. It's not quite the word dog. Uh, as, as a linguist, I'll talk about something called semantic domains, right? A word describes a certain set of things. And other words describe certain other sets of things, and sometimes words overlap. The Greek word for dog, just like the general word for canine, is kion. That's not what Jesus calls this woman. He calls her kinarion, which is a word that means a little dog, a, a pet dog, a lap dog. In that time, Kion, Kionoi would live outside. They did not come into the house. They were not pets. Kinarion were pets. They lived in the house. They were part of the family in that sense. I, I kind of wish our English Bible reflected this a little bit by saying something like pet dogs or lap dogs rather than just the general word dog. Jesus is not saying, get out of here, you mutt. He's saying, it's not right to feed pets before children. Okay, all that said, Pastor Tim, is this really any much better? By teasing out the nuances of this little Greek word, does that really make what Jesus is saying to her any better? Okay, so maybe he's not a hateful racist, but he's at least kind of a patronizing one, right? Or if racist feels like a, a too strong of a word to describe it, maybe we reach for a little something else, right, to talk about semantic domains. Prejudiced. Biased. Right? There's got to be some word, something we can use that we can reach for to describe this behavior. Call it what you will, right? Prejudice, racism, bias. All of those words simply describe, more or less strongly, this same stupid inclination of the sinful human heart. The, the same sinful human inclination of the human heart that makes up things as pointless as cool kids' tables and as cruel as apartheid. It's all the same thing. All out of the same sinful human heart. And Christianity has no room for any of it. That's what I, we heard clearly in our first and second readings today. Through the prophet Isaiah, we heard the Lord announcing to his people 700 years before Jesus that his house, which is the Christian church of Old and New Testament, would be called a house of prayer for all nations. To a congregation of Gentiles in the Greek city of Ephesus, seven centuries later, the Apostle Paul, we heard him write these words, You Gentiles are no longer foreigners and strangers, your fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So Paul writes to that group later in that letter to them that we read from, that this is the life they ought to lead now. Be completely humble and gentle. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, because there is one body and one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So what gives in our gospel reading. If there's only 
one Lord, one hope, one God and Father of all people, then what is Jesus doing here? What are these, these dismissive, unloving words that come off of his lips to this woman? The story only comes together when we see what Jesus' goal was here. When Jesus fed those 5,000, he wanted to stretch the faith of his disciples. That's why he tells them, you give them something to eat and they can't come up with a solution, so he solves it for them. He wanted to stretch their faith. And then when Jesus, again, called Peter out to him on the water, he allowed Peter to exercise his faith, but he found, as he often did, a man of little faith. So then they cross the water, and what do they find? The Pharisees, these loveless, heartless, unkind, law-motivated, no faith, no trust in him, no, no thought for his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, his salvation. Little faith, no faith. This is what Jesus is finding himself surrounded by. Finally, Jesus decides it's time that the disciples see what strong faith looks like. So Jesus, it says, Jesus left that place and withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It was Jesus. Right, we've got to figure that out right at the beginning of the story. Jesus chose to go into this region populated by Gentiles. Why? Because again, it was high time that the disciples see what strong faith, great faith looked like. And he knew that he was going to find someone there who could show that to them. The crowds that had followed him hadn't shown strong faith. Over and over, what they do is misunderstand his mission. Right? They wanted to make him their bread king after he fed them. The Pharisees hadn't shown strong faith despite all their pious posturing. Peter and the disciples. Peter, the leader among them, the one who's always ready to, to jump ahead, to, to speak boldly and loudly. Jesus calls him the one of little faith. The disciples need to see what strong faith looks like. So Jesus goes into this region, Tyre, Sidon, where these Gentiles live. He lets his presence become known so that this woman finds out about his visit. And she knows who he is. We notice that. She knows that this is not just some miracle healer, right? A traveling conjurer, a snake oil salesman. No, Jesus, son of David, she cries out to him. She knows, surely you are the Messiah, the promised Savior. Not only the son of David, she calls him, but Lord, she says. Her God is here with her. Her creator is here with her. This is key to true faith. To understanding who God is and who you are, what your relationship is there. This woman understands those things. The Pharisees did not. They did not understand their relationship with God. They, they misunderstood who they were. They thought that they brought something to the table. They thought that they had something to offer God. They thought that God would be pleased with the things that they brought to the table for him. On the other hand, the disciples consistently misunderstood who Jesus was. Over and over, uh, on another occasion, when Jesus calmed a storm that was sweeping over another boat that they were in, the disciples marvel at one another and they say, who is this man? They don't understand who he is. But this woman understands who Jesus is. This woman understands who she is. She knows that she brings nothing to the table. She's humble. And when he raises the, the table metaphor and this, this pet dog metaphor, she grabs onto that. She seizes it to illustrate exactly what their relationship is. Yes, Lord, that's exactly it. I have come to your table with nothing. And I know that even pets can expect a handout because their masters love them. 
This is great faith. Her humble faith is great faith. We still have that question, though, right? What's Jesus' actual attitude toward her? What does he actually think of this woman? Does he value her less than he values his own people? Does he regard her as less than himself, less than people of his own ethnic background? Does he, use a technical term here, dehumanize her with the way he looks at her? Is she less human than him? Is she less worthy of dignity? Is she worthy of less respect, of less love because of who she is? See exactly how it is he replies to her. Woman, you have great faith, he says to her. Right now, here we get to see what his heart has been this whole time. Everything up until now has been a show for the disciples' benefit. Right? He wants to see, he wants them to see someone chasing him, hounding him, to, to use a pun there. Hounding after him with great faith, with persistent faith, right? Someone holding him to his promises holding him to the promise of who he is, that he is not the God of any one particular race, tribe, people, nation, language, but he's the God of all, the creator of all. That he is not the God who expects us to bring something to the dinner table, right? That the Christian church is not a potluck where we're expected to contribute something instead. That he's the God who rains manna out of heaven on undeserving rebels. That this is who her God is. And he wants to, the disciples to see someone chase him with that dogged, persistent, indefatigable, I love that word, humble faith. But he knows how his comments could come off to her. Right? He knows the damage that he could do to her. And so think about what it is that he finally says here at the end when he shows her his heart. Not only does he teach the disciples what it was that they ought to look for as as strong faith, but he comforts and he rewards her. Woman, he calls her, right? She is human. She is fully human, a human being worthy of respect and dignity and love, his dear creation. And then what does he say? Our English Bible reads here, your request is granted. That's kind of cold. It's kind of uh, flavorless. What literally the Greek says here is, Let it be done for you just as you wish. What he says there, she's sitting down at the table now, right? She's not just under the table begging for scraps. She's sitting at the table and here's Jesus, her waiter. What what would Madame like this evening? Oh, this is our Jesus. He lowers himself to serve us. We talked about that our God promises to exalt the proud, but to cast down, or to exalt the humble, but to cast down the proud. Your exaltation is not in being raised up over others. That's the kind of exaltation that the world looks for. It's a worldly exaltation. This is your exaltation, that your Savior lowers himself beneath you, serves you. What did he explain his mission to the disciples? I've not come to be served. I've come to serve. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. This is our Jesus. This is your exaltation. That the creator of the universe, the God of all things, died in your place. Promises that wherever two or three come together in his name, there he is. He shows up. Right? He's at our beck and call. He presents himself to us for our benefit in, in bread, in wine, in water, in word, 
wherever we bring these things together and we come together as his people, he shows up. He makes himself present. He's on call. Our servant, our waiter, our savior, our God. Friends, with such a a humble savior, may we each and every day have the same kind of humble, gentle, patient faith in him. May we look at one another with the eyes of Christ. Amen.